Hey, thanks for falling back. It's good to see you guys here today. We're going to continue in our series called Recovering Redemption this week. And, you know, my, my prayer through all of this is that um, your families and you um, might have used this as a hinging point in your life towards a deeper understanding of the gospel and how it impacts our lives um, through greater understanding that this gospel would become the reality of your hearts and there would be some significant things that would happen in your hearts because of it. Um, so here's the, if that's happened, if, if you have been in this and, and, and something has, has sparked in you or you're in a group and some conversation has sparked, I'm just going to ask you to tell somebody. Tell somebody about that. That's where we as believers get encouragement, just to hear people saying, hey, this, this is working in my life. And I'm not saying tell me. I'm saying tell anybody that God is working in our life. It's important that we do that. So if you have time and you think about that, do that. So let's just rewind a little bit, hit the rewind button here, and just kind of talk about uh, a couple things that we talked about last week before we jump into this week. Uh, last week, we talked about the terms justification and adoption. We said that we are justified. It's a legal term that says that God has made us right through no effort of our own. It's a gift to us. We can't earn it. And we said in that same moment that God justified us, that he's adopting us as sons and daughters. And we tried to hammer home the point that God delights in his children just the way they are, not some future version of themselves. And then we said when we get a fuller understanding of the words justification and adoption, it should propel us into this grace-driven effort alongside the Spirit and begin this process of being sanctified where we look more and more and more like the image of Christ. Not by pushing some magic button, but by renewing our minds, by setting our minds on things above, to say that I don't live here anymore, I live here. And that alongside with the Spirit of God would work itself out in our life where we become serious about killing the sin that's in our life, that we would do hard things for Jesus. So today, we'll be combining a couple sessions again, and that only is significant for those of you who are in groups. Uh, we're combining a couple things together. We feel like the church uh, needs to address these underlying currents of guilt and shame and fear and anxiety in our lives because I can't feel like a son or daughter adopted by Christ if I am shameful about who I am. And this issue of fear and anxiety causes us to walk in bondage sometimes and not in the freedom that Christ came here to give us. So we're combining these today, and by no means could we today spend the significant amount of time on these terms that they probably de deserve. We could do standalone four-week series, eight-week series on guilt and shame, because I think it's kind of that big of a deal in our lives. But we're going to try to push through it today. So here's, here's my challenge to you. Let's dig into this a little bit deeper this week. If you go onto this thing, it's new maybe, called the intranet. I think it's what it's called. You can go to uh, this thing called YouTube. Maybe it's a silent Y. It's O-Tube. I'm not sure. But you can search the series called Recovering Redemption, and you can listen to full-length sermons on guilt and shame and fear and anxiety, and it would be worth your time to kind of do that. If you're in a group, you can talk to your group leaders and borrow the DVDs and, and walk through these things individually by yourself. So these terms, guilt and shame, fear and anxiety, weighty, 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 weighty issues significant terms, and many of you in here have lives that have been marked by tragic understandings of these terms. Many of you in this room are either living or overcoming overwhelming anxiety or overwhelming shame, and that is not something that we want to make light of this week. So by no means am I going to come up here and pretend that I'm a scholar in these fields. I'm not. These are deep issues with deep psychological roots. What I am is not a psychologist. 
What I am is somebody that loves the Word of God and wants to overlay the Word of God on things like these and see how they would help us to deal with them. So this week I've tried really hard to bring the Word of God together with some trusted articles from some people that love God and are really, really smart. And they've done some really, really good work in these areas. And so we're going to walk through this. Here's the cool thing. The statistics that keep coming out, the knowledge that keeps coming out in the field, especially guilt and shame and fear and anxiety, continue to prop up Scripture as the best life possible. Continually saying the same thing that God's been saying for millenniums now. It's really kind of cool. So today, we want to battle against these terms, guilt and shame, using the Word of God and some trusted resources. And before we jump into that, I want to take some time just to prepare our hearts. So I'm going to give you kind of the next 20 seconds here to kind of pray for yourself that God would open your hearts today, that He would speak to you, that He would maybe move some stuff, that He would prod in your life and say, hey, let's work on this. So you do that for 20 seconds or so, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll jump in our Jeeps and drive through this. Father, today we just pray that you would uh, just bring us a deeper sense of understanding these difficult emotions. Help us to fully understand what you bring to us when it comes to how to deal with this. Speak to our hearts today, Father, and would you just take my words and just use them for your purposes today. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I want to do just a little foundational work before we jump into these terms, guilt and shame and fear and anxiety. It's important for us to understand that we, to have really significant breakthrough in our lives, that there, are, there has to be something present in our life. And I'm not just talking about Jesus here. It, it, that is the root of it. We have to have Jesus in our life. What I am talking about is the word vulnerability. Vulnerability has to show itself in our lives if we're ever going to be really serious about these really deep issues that face us in our life. But here's the hard thing. We don't like vulnerability. It scares us. Brene Brown is an author. She's a research, a really smart lady. And she has done a lot of research in this topic of vulnerability and shame. Incredible insight. And you know what? We're just going to use some of her stuff today to bring some clarity to this. So this stuff, you don't have to give me credit for, okay? This comes from a really, really wise lady. Uh, So let's do a little exercise this morning. Not going to make you do jumping jacks or anything like that. No physical things involved. But I want you to be honest with yourselves. In your head, when you hear the words vulnerability and weakness, do you link them together? So I just want to know, raise your hand if you think vulnerability and weakness go together. Okay, a lot of you think vulnerability and issue and weakness go together. And here's the deal. This is, this is a significant issue in our culture, that we evaluate vulnerability as weakness. We evaluate them as being weak. We despise weakness in this culture, but, and there's a but here, we don't view it that same way when we see it in other people. We don't see vulnerability when we see it with our own eyes in other people as weakness. We see it as strength. And for an example of that, many of you last week were really encouraging towards me just about sharing part of my testimony. I got vulnerable up here, but what you told me was that you saw that was strong. Isn't that crazy that when we see it in other people, it's strength, but when we think about it in ourselves, and I don't want to look weak here, I don't want to talk about my issue, it's just this psychological garbage that we believe ourselves. But listen to me, 
We want to see weakness as, or, or vulnerability as being weakness, but I'm telling you this, God sees it as our strength. We want to see being vulnerable as weakness, but God sees it as our strength. And here's just some honesty. Guys in the room here, men, here's what we equate vulnerability to be, a vulnerability to. Being locked in a room and just, like at seven, my mom didn't hug me, and like, it's just been significant issues. That's what we think, I don't wanna be that. I wanna be that guy that just kind of breaks down. But that's not what vulnerability is. This is the way it works out in my life. Hey man, really struggling with this. Could you pray for me? It could look like you send a text to somebody and say, hey, I know this sounds weird, but right now I'm having these thoughts. Would you pray for me? And guess what ends up happening in that? That relationship kind of just builds. Somebody stepped out and this, guess what the guy that got that text goes, okay, I know I can come to this guy if I got struggles. And it just, this bridge begins to get built where we bring heavier and heavier and heavier stuff across it. That's what vulnerability looks like. It doesn't have to be cry fest, all right? So don't put that in your head. So when we talk about all these terms that we've talked about, brokenness, justification, adoption, fear, anxiety, guilt and shame, we can talk about them all day long, but they won't have the type of return in your life unless we're willing to be vulnerable in our weakness. Unless we're willing to be weak enough to let somebody know, hey, I'm struggling with this. The foundational element to a healthy identity in Christ is to know that you're weak. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 11, Verse 30, it says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. If I must boast, I will show of the things that boast my weakness. Brene Brown writes it this way in her book. She says, owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous on giving up on love, belonging, and joy. The experiences that make us the most vulnerable. Only when we brave enough to explore the darknesses of our soul will we discover the infinite power of our light. Vulnerability, guys, is the key, in, the key issue in all of the issues with guilt, shame, fear, and anxiety. It's a key element there. And there are three ingredients that cause us to live out these emotional issues in a really dysfunctional way where these emotional issues almost hold us in bondage. And those three ingredients are these things. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. Of those three, two of them we control. Now, there are people in this room that have told some significant hurts in your life to people that you thought you could trust, and you left that room feeling condemned and not loved. And I'm sorry that somebody took the license to do that to you. But listen, holding our stuff in because we don't want to get burned again isn't protecting us. It's actually keeping you from the life that God came here to give you, keeping you from the freedom that he came here to give you. As a philosophy major, this just seems like really poor logic to me, that I've got this significant hurt in my life that I'm dealing with, and I'd rather live with it than tell you. It is almost like you would walk around with an arm that's freshly cut off, profusely spraying blood, but you say, if somebody asks you, are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. I'm dealing with it. It's okay. It doesn't make any sense. Look, I know that there are some hurts in this room, and no one is going to deny that, but at some point, thinking or saying phrases like this, I'm not going to talk about it because I've been burned by too many people that I cared about, just becomes a convenient excuse rather than the reality that you live in. It's a line that we say because we don't want to take emotional risk. So moving forward 
and all of these things that we talk about, vulnerability has to be a key element to our life. It is what will propel us into wholehearted living illuminated by the gospel of Christ. So let's take this term and put in the aspects of shame and guilt, fear and anxiety. Now there are two realities in which these sets of emotions live in. The first reality comes out of Romans 1, verses 28 through 32. And we'll put them on the screen and we'll read those together. It says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, hater of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give appro approval to those who practice them. So this is the reality where our hearts, because we desire it, are given over to our own desires. And that is a reality we call self-dependence. A dependency on ourselves that says, ultimately, I'm the one that I'm going to trust to navigate myself through these emotions and feelings. That I'm going to validate them, that I'm going to believe them, that I'm going to have them played out in my life the way that I want them. That's our first reality. The second reality comes out of Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24. It says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. The second reality that these emotions can live in is the reality of a God-dependent life. This reality that says that, hey, these emotions are valid. I feel them, they're valid emotions, but ultimately, I'm not gonna trust myself enough to navigate myself through this because I've failed in this miserably hundreds of times. I'm gonna lean on God to help me navigate through this stuff, to help me validate and believe the lies. That's a God-dependent life. Maybe you in this crowd need to figure out which reality your emotional life is living in. Our first set of emotions, guilt and shame. Dick Keyes is an author of just a really short article called Guilt and Shame. And it would be worth your time to read through that. There's a lot of good stuff in there. We're gonna take a lot, of that, a lot of his stuff out of there today. The terms guilt and shame are, you know, they're just commonly put together. We view them as kind of being synonymous. Shame is felt, but it's a little bit, it's not really talked about and it's really little yet more understood. Uh, that's partly because we confuse guilt with shame at the same time. So to clarify them, what I wanna do is define them by using their opposites. And so the opposite of guilt is, is what? It's innocence, right? Moral purity. The opposite of shame is not innocence. The opposite of shame is glory or honor. And you would see this in like Hosea 4. It says that God will change their glory into shame. That in Philippians, it says they had sh uh, glory in their shame. Um, that's what this term means. Both shame and guilt are falling short of something. It's a feeling of unacceptability or badness. For our purposes today, we're going to define them like this. Guilt equals I did something bad, and shame equals I am bad. I have done something bad, and shame is I am bad. Now, not all guilt and shame is bad. There can be good in this, not much, 
but there can be good. Guilt and shame can produce within us the kind of repentance to the Father that should be done. That I feel guilty for sinning against the God of the universe and I'm shameful that I smeared his holy name. That guilt and shame should drive us in repentance to the Father and have an attitude of making it right with the ones that we sinned against. But ultimately, after we have repentance, it's done. God has dealt with it. If, God, if what God says is true, that he has separated us from our sin like the east is from the west, then he's saying that sin is forgiven, dealt with, and forgotten. But here's the issue. We don't believe God. We'd rather beat ourselves up about that. And look, I know that this is a significant issue in a lot of Christians' life. And, and so significant, I don't think we can give the time it deserves to talk about that. That's a sermon later on. But this is the only example where guilt and shame work together to be beneficial. After that, it doesn't do any benefit for anybody. But here's the deal. It's a reality that we live in. Guilt and shame. For us, most of us, we have guilt and shame that we're not who we hoped we would be. Right? That we're not who we hoped we would be. Maybe that we're not this ideal person that we wanted to be. So in that, we develop this kind of low-grade shame that we walk around on a daily basis. So guilt has to do with morals and rights and wrongs, and shame has to do with models, things and people that we glorify or, or honor. And it comes from this idea that we all have heroes in our life that we're trying to be like. There's this kind of notion that there's this ideal person that we'd like to be. And psychologists, dang it, I was going to get through that word. Psychologist, yes, that is like the first time I've ever said that word correctly. So it's a big deal to me right now. I'm just going to bask in that, just get a moment. Okay, I can take it now. Psychologists, twice, call it the self idea. It functions as this ideal self-portrait in which we measure ourselves by. We feel shame often suddenly when we fall short of that. And here's a problem in our culture. An obvious problem is this, is that if we have our morals derived from the Bible and our models in life defined by the world, it's not going to go well for us. And honestly, this happens way too much, that we love the lifestyle and the model that comes in the Bible. The people in our lives that we idolize have a completely different set of views. So if we're going to believe what the Bible says, but you have self -idea, your self-ideas built around heroes in the world, you've set yourself up for guilt and shame. You've set yourself up for guilt and shame. In other words, we have the shame in our life because we know what we want to be. We know that we want to live like God would want us to. But the people we value most to help us walk on a daily basis lead us into a life that doesn't, doesn't do that. So we feel shameful because we know we're falling short. We know we want what we want to be and we can't get there. And here's, here's an issue with me. I mean, this has been an issue for my whole life. It's like for the good chunk of my life, I, I believe that God is right and good and, and honorable. I believe that to some extent. And I knew what kind of he wanted from me, but I had some good people in my life that, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't doing this. But I knew this is where I wanted to go. So I lived in this kind of low-grade shame where I was like, man, I want to be this, and I beat myself up. And I'm just going to be honest with you. Last service, I'm up here. I'm talking about guilt and shame, fear and anxiety. And what do I know about guilt and shame, fear and anxiety? I'm not a counselor. And so I see two counselors out there, and I'm starting to write this story in my head. Oh, there's my friend right there. I bet she thinks I'm an idiot. I bet she thinks that I have, man, I'm just a phony. What am I up here? And so I just begin to write this story in my head that has no real basis in reality that I'm not this. And then what do I do? I felt shameful on stage first service. And this is a story that we do all the time, that we write these scripts in our heads that have no reality and we walk in shame because of them. 
So this is how guilt and shame normally play out in our lives. That we become guilty because we've done something, that we've fallen short of something, we're not who we are, or we didn't do something that we're supposed to be. And in that guilt, we feel shame. And as a result of that shame, what happens is we walk ourselves into some really poor emotions and attitudes. Really poor. So a lot of those emotions and attitudes come from anger. A self-anger. A self-hate that we view ourselves as dirty and unworthy. And because of that, what happens, it propels us into finding relief. And then we walk ourselves into sin easily. And then what do we do when we sin? Feel guilty, right? And shameful. And then what do we do again? Hate myself. Can't believe I did that. Find some relief. What do we do after that? Feel guilty. Guilty again, right? Shameful. It's a cycle, right? Just this stupid cycle of guilt and shame that marks our lives, that we just like a hamster in a wheel, just chugging along it, just trying to find some space to get out of it. So what is the answer to get us out of there? Look, there are some significant things that counselors can do for us. And I, I'm just going to tell you this. I, I go to a counselor. I'm not afraid to tell you that. I have gone in seasons of my life because there are issues in my life that I'm, look, I'm an idiot. I can't deal with them. So there are people that I trust that I have to go to. But outside of that, if we look in the word of God, this all boils down to an identity issue. It all boils down to an identity that we either don't believe that God has fully forgiven us or that he doesn't really love us. It's that simple. But that simplicity is so difficult to live out in our lives. And this is where vulnerability has to come in. That we have to be in the practice of letting God and other people know our hearts and our failures. Because listen, I've experienced this in my life and I know this to be true. That nothing drives out guilt and shame more in our lives than a heart that is fully known, yet fully delighted in. Nothing will ever drive out guilt and shame more than a heart that's fully known and yet fully delighted in. Those guilt and shame does not live in that heart. Can't. So we have to create this kind of vulnerability with God and other people who love God, that we're confessing our weaknesses, but also understanding that he's not mad at us. God doesn't hate us. And if we remember last week that God, that we were justified for no good reason, we couldn't earn it and adopt it as his sons and daughters by faith. And this isn't an an invitation into a perfect life. It's an invitation into a life that says, let's fight this together. Because we can go through almost anything in life. If we know behind us stands somebody who reveres and admires and loves us, we'll fight for that. And that's what Jesus offers us. A steadfast love that's faithful to us to push us through our struggles for him and in him. Because without good reason, he justified and adopted us. Nothing we could do to earn it. Show it so it propels within us a desire to fight well because of it. So if you're in here today and guilt and shame has marked your life and it's a stronghold for you, I just want you to hear the words that Paul writes in Romans 8. And maybe for the first time in your life, embrace them for you. For you. This is said to you. So let's read them together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all things that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, and I love this, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things of Things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's an amen to us. That he is there for us and that if we bring our guilt and our shame to his throne, that he is faithful to deal with us because we are more than conquerors in him who justifies us. Look, this is a huge issue for us. But I also know that fear and anxiety is a big issue for us in this room. So that's where I want to take us for the rest of the time. We're just going to define fear as this. Fear is being affected by lack of control. Interesting way to define fear. Anxiety equals living in a state of fear. And I just want to start off by saying that not all fear is bad. Fear like guilt can be a good fear. Healthy fear makes us jump out of the way of moving trucks, right? In general, a healthy fear keeps us on the sidewalk and not jumping out into oncoming traffic. And people who don't have this fear are really just psychopaths, right? They have this, this ballooned, bulletproof invincibility that will surely kill them someday down the line if they continue to live in that life. So there are definitely things that are legitimate fears, things to be reasoned, things to be properly liked and properly disliked. But there are many, many, many illegitimate fears. Worries that contain no real substance, no basis for reality except in our own imagination. What we're talking about here are the debilitating what-ifs of life. The kind of fear that strips all joy and stability out of our lives. The kind that can paralyze us even in the midst of the most beautiful day. So real and so vivid that we're, we can't even enjoy what's happening in front of us because we're so concerned about what's coming around the next corner. And as a follower of Christ, this is not something that God would want our lives marked by. We have to do something with fear and anxiety because it is not in line with God's good and right design. We have to do something with fear and anxiety because it is not in line with God's good and right design. Now, what I don't think a lot of us in this room, maybe you do, what we don't understand is that fear and anxiety is really not the issue here. There's deeper issues at work here. Some of us in this room feel a desire to control everything. That we crave control like, a, like an addict craves alcohol. That craving control tends to lead us into heightened desires to manipulate and maneuver in situations to get on top of things. So this is a little bit of a control issue, fear and anxiety is. But the bottom line in this is, and this may be hard to hear, the bottom line in fear and anxiety is that we don't trust that God is good. The bottom line in fear and anxiety is that we don't trust God as good. We don't trust God. We hold deep convictions that our way is better than his way, that we truly believe that we can fix the problem ourselves or force that person to like us or make ourselves perfect. Fear and anxiety is actually an outworking of control and trust issues. And Jesus speaks directly to the root of this problem in Matthew 6. So let's read that together. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, 
what you put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so closes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added to you. And this is just a really poignant direct verse. I love it. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do you know, do you really know that you are the most valuable thing, you, that God has ever created. If you believe what he says in his word, you are the most valuable thing that he's ever, you are the most valued thing on this earth above everything else. God values you. And he is promising you that he's going to take care of you. Promising you that. There's some significant other things in this verse that I want to unpack. He begins to talk about these priorities of, by which we live our life. How we value different things. He says, is life not more than food? In the body more than clothing, one way that Jesus is dialing us into how fear and anxiety work in our lives is by saying, hey, be careful what value you give to certain things. Because the more value you give to specific things, the more fear and anxiety will rule and reign around those things in your life. Don't hold on too tightly to things that don't need to be held on too tightly to. If you do, your life is going to be marked with fear and anxiety. So here's the question. What are some of those things? What are some of those things that we hold on way too tightly that cause way too much stress, anxiety, and fear in our lives? This would be a good exercise for you. This would be a good exercise for you on the way home to list out the things that you don't trust God enough into to take care of. Maybe for you it's money. Maybe it's stuff. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's your kids, your grandkids. Whatever it is, think about it. And here's a great measuring stick for you in measuring those fear and anxieties. Will that fear and anxiety really matter in a thousand years? Because here's the bad news. I hope that you know this. We will die someday, all of us. And we're going to be in glory with the Father. And do you really think that fear and anxiety is going to matter too much up there? I bet if we would look at our lives 20, 15, 10, 5 years ago, many of you in this room would be embarrassed about the types of fear and anxieties that you had back then because they played themselves out in a way that they were silly. Kind of how it works in my life. When I was in high school, like, I had this huge anxiety about having a girlfriend. Like, I was, I'm not going to say I was awkward, but I was, yeah, a little bit, a little awkward. I'm just not going to lie. And so I had like this, uh, like, I wanted a girlfriend, but I didn't want to do any work for it, okay? I wanted to just stick in my circle. And so I just remember telling myself, like, all right, God, if you just, I mean, if I could have a girlfriend, like, that would be the greatest thing ever. And then I just began to talk to myself and, and just believe 
No one's ever going to love you. No, one, no, one's, no girl's going to ever date you. No one's ever going to like you. And then guess what happened? Like I hit the jackpot, yo. Like I came sevens. I got the best wife in the world. And so when I look back at that, that was silly, wasn't it? That was silly of me to worry about that. Look, I am not saying that your fears and anxiety are silly. I don't want you to hear me that today. I know that we're dealing with significant issues in that realm. What I do want you to hear me to say today is that tools that you can use to understand where this emotion set is properly channeled. But none of this, none of this does us any good. I can talk to you till I'm blue in the face. I won't. None of this does us any good if we're not willing to talk about it. Would you be man enough or woman enough to say, hey, I'm afraid of this. I'm scared of this. Even if your fear involves something that you think people might think you're crazy about because you're worrying about it, would you tell somebody? The invitation in the gospel is to bring fear and anxiety into the open, into the light. 1 John 1, 7 says this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The way that we deal with these issues in our lives is not by hiding them or running away from them. It's by dragging them into the light and into the arms of a loving father. So when we talk about the issues of fear and anxiety and guilt and shame, what we're actually talking about is this. Who is the sovereign ruler of your life? Who is the sovereign ruler of your life? Is it God or is it you? And if it's you, how's that working out for you, friend? How's that working out for you? God is big enough to handle your mess. And you, by faith, need to bring these issues into the light. We need to be honest about our weakness, vulnerable in our weakness, and in that weakness, I promise you, maybe not right at the start, but you will find a strength that is uncommon to this earth. Will all our problems go away? Don't hear me say that. I'm not going to say that. But here's the deal. We have put ourselves in the best situation for healings to begin. There is no better place for healing to begin than the arms of our Father. That we drag our issues into the light. Because in John it says that the light cannot be overcome by darkness. And so we kill our struggles and our desires and these issues of fear and anxiety by dragging them, screeching and yelling to some of us, into the light and exposing them. That's how we do it. Let's pray. Father, just thanks for today. Thanks for these people. Thanks for their journey. Thanks for the fact that you're faithful, even, even in the midst of the, the seasons that we feel like you're not. We know that you're faithful to us. You promised that you're faithful to us. Today, we just ask that through your strength that you would make us weak, that through your strength you would help us just to be honest. We give you permission to prod and pull things out of us that we've kept in the darkness and drag them into the light. Father, work out these issues of guilt and shame and fear and anxiety in our life so we can walk in the type of freedom that you sent your son here to give us. And it's in that son's name we pray. Amen.